0: It was on July 29, 1981, that I recall watching the royal wedding. I was just a child, but I was one of one billion people in 74 countries who tuned in to watch the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana. The Archbishop of Canterbury presided at the royal wedding that day, and he gave a great message, a great sermon to the couple. He said, Here is the stuff of which fairy tales are made. The prince and princess on their wedding day. But fairy tales usually end at this point with the simple phrase, They lived happily ever after. He continued, This may be because fairy tales regard marriage as the anticlimax after the romance of courtship. This is not the Christian view. Our faith sees the wedding day not as a place of arrival, but the place where the adventure begins. And I know that as people watch that just absolutely fairytale-like wedding, that they hoped and prayed and wished for the best for this new couple. And yet you probably know that it wasn't but just a few short years later when under the gaze of the tabloids, that the problems in the royal family came to light. In fact, sadly, in 1992, the couple separated, and then in 1996, they were divorced. A year after the divorce, still loved by millions of people, Lady Diana, Princess Diana, was killed in a car accident in Paris. They did not live happily ever after. And you know, I think there is a myth that says that there's some point in your life that if you can just reach that point, then you get to live happily ever after. And there will be no more problems and no pain and no struggles, no trials, no tribulations. Maybe for you it's marriage. If I can just get married and marry that person, that person can solve all my problems and life will just be great from here on out. And all the married people say, oh me, <laughs> if, that's, if that's what you think. Maybe for you that pivotal moment is if I can just get this job or if I can go to this school. After that, everything will be awesome. Maybe for you it was when I become a Christian, now that I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, everything is just up and great from here on out. But can I burst the bubble? Can I dispel the myth? No one lives happily ever after in this life. Uh, You say, well, I got up this morning for that. What a great, encouraging message. But reality crashes in on our best laid plans, our greatest hopes and dreams and ambitions. Sometimes our great plans don't come to fruition or our dreams don't come true or our prayers aren't answered because of something we've done Or because of something someone else has done. Or because we just simply live in a broken world. But it doesn't take long for reality to crash in when you realize, I may not get that dream job after all. I may not be able to go to that school I've always aspired to. Reality may come crashing in. this marriage is not going to survive. Your best laid plans and dreams and prayers may not be answered when you realize your child, your prodigal child may not come home. You may recognize that life is not always about living happily ever after when you've suddenly been diagnosed with cancer. And if you're a follower of Christ or if you're kind of a spiritual person, it can be doubly painful Because not only are your dreams not coming true and your plans not coming true, but where's God in all of this? It can be doubly disappointing because you say, God's let me down. After all, God owes me this. And and God promised me this. God owes me this because I've played by the rules and I've prayed and I went to church and I gave money and I try to help other people and I'm kind to animals. God owes me this. Or God promised, God promised you raise up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. But God, I've been waiting for years and my child hasn't come home to what we taught them. You're not living happily ever after and you're wondering if you ever will. And at that moment you can begin to think, has God abandoned me? Is God punishing me? Does God not love me anymore And you can even become so discouraged that you give up. Why pray? Why read the Bible? Why go to church? Why try to do the right thing? When it seems like my dreams are dashed on the rocks of reality. When it seems like my prayers go unanswered. When it seems like my plans fall to pieces. So in our closing message today in this series, I want to answer this question. What do you do? when life isn't working out for you? What do you do when life isn't working out for you? David has reached the pinnacle of his career. At the age of 30 years old, he has finally become the king of Israel. And yet, his life was anything but a fairy tale before that and after that moment. We discussed a couple of weeks ago how... Twenty years into his reign as the king, around the age of 50 years old, David sinned by sleeping with another man's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. And he hid his sin, he tried to cover his sin. And eventually God confronted him and disciplined him about his sin. And to his credit, David honestly repented of his sin and humbled himself before God and prayed for forgiveness. And God heard his prayer. God forgave him. But through the prophet Nathan, God also said, David, your family will never be the same. Your life will never be the same. You see, David learned a hard lesson that day that we need to learn that you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences to your sin. And there were consequences. David's family never was the same. Shortly after the Bathsheba episode, as we talked about last Sunday in a very difficult chapter in David's life David's, one of David's daughters named Tamar was raped by her half brother his name was Amnon, Amnon was David's oldest son he was the next in line to the throne of Israel but he became absolutely obsessed with his half sister to the point where he physically raped her Tamar who was the full sister of Absalom, was left undefended. David did not comfort her, nor did he confront Amnon for his sin. Now, thankfully, Absalom did comfort Tamar. Absalom was her brother. He brought Tamar into his home, and she lived with him for the rest of her life. And Absalom did not speak to his brother Amnon from that day forward. Two years went by, and he didn't say a word to his brother. But he had vowed in his heart from that day he heard what he had done to Tamar, that he would seek justice, and he would kill his brother. And that's what happened. Two years goes by, and... Absalom comes to David and says, It's sheep-shearing time. You know, we're going to bring in a lot of money. This is an exciting time. I'm going to throw a feast in my home. I want you and the brothers to come. David said, Well, it'd be too much trouble if I show up with all my entourage. David says, I'm not going to come. Absalom says, Well, what about the brothers and, and especially Amnon? And David thinks, That's odd. You want Amnon to come. You guys haven't been on speaking terms. But sure, Amnon can come. So Absalom throws a party fit for a king. You talk about a feast in the banquet hall like you've never seen before, and the wine flowed freely. And little did Amnon know, but he had conspired with, Absalom had conspired with his servants, that once Amnon was good and drunk, Absalom would give the signal. The servants were to come in. And when he gave the signal, the servants came into the banquet hall and slaughtered Amnon right in front of all the brothers and the guests. The rest of the brothers flee back to Jerusalem, running for their lives, not sure what's going to happen next. Absalom, knowing what he's done, killing the oldest son of the king, his half-brother flees north. Sadly, David again does nothing. Nothing. He fails again as a father. Three years pass by after the slaughter of Amnon. David's now missing his son Absalom. He wants to see him again. And even though he knows it's not politically popular because the people had turned against Absalom for what he had done to Amnon, he still wants to see his son. So David gets word to his commanding officer Joab, commander of David's armies. And Joab sends a wise woman to talk to David about going ahead and acting on your impulse to bring Absalom home. So she tells a story. It's a fictitious story, but David doesn't know it's a fictitious story. The woman says, I'm a poor widow. My husband is dead. I only have two sons. And one day they were out in a field and they had an altercation and there was no one there to stop them. And one of the sons killed the other. And now my only living relative is a fugitive. And the rest of my family wants him dead, but if he's killed, I have no one. I'm a destitute woman. And David says, no, you bring your son home. Don't let your family name die with him. You bring him home. I'll protect you. Do what's right to keep your family name alive. And then she says, that's great advice, king. Why don't you take your own advice? And then David says, did Joab send you to talk to me about bringing Absalom back? And she says, yes, he did. So he eventually, he invites Absalom back to Jerusalem. Son, you can go back to your palace. You can come back to the city. But the king refuses to see you. David did not want to see his son. Two more years passed by with them two not seeing each other. Absalom banished from the presence of the king. Absalom wants to see his dad, so he tries to get word to Joab, the commanding officer. Tell David, I want to see him. But even Joab refused to talk to Absalom. So eventually, in frustration, Absalom sends his servants over to Joab's farm to burn it to the ground. And that got Joab's attention. Joab says, what are you doing? He says, well, it's finally nice to talk to you after two years. I've been trying to get a hold of you. You wouldn't return any of my calls, none of my texts. And he says, I want to see my dad. And so Joab goes and he tells David, you need to see your son. He feels like you've rejected him. And so David summons Absalom into the palace. Absalom comes in, falls on his face before David. David rises, greets his son, and kisses his son. It was a symbol, I'm restoring you. All is well, but it wasn't. We don't know if David never spoke to Absalom again, but there was a rift between them two now where Absalom made up his mind. The only way forward was for him to overthrow his father and for Absalom to become the king. And for four years, he plotted against his father. This is what he'd do. Every day, he'd go out to the city gate of Jerusalem, and he would set up his his station there. And his people came from all over Israel into the city to meet the king so the king could settle their disputes Absalom would greet them. Hey, how are you? Where are you from? They would tell him where they're from. Well, what brings you to this capital city? Well, I've got this great problem. Tell me about your problem. They would tell Absalom all their problems. And then Absalom would say, you know, you've got a strong case here. It's it's sad though, isn't it, that the king, he doesn't have anybody to settle these kind of matters. You're on your own. The king, I don't know, maybe he's too busy, maybe he doesn't care, but there's nobody that's going to hear your complaint. But if I were you, here's what I would do. And then Absalom would give them good advice. And the scriptures say that over four years, Absalom, quote, stole the hearts of the people. Where people became disenchanted with David and infatuated with Absalom, saying David doesn't care, but he cares. He's a real leader. He's compassionate. He did this for four years, and then at the fourth year, he set his coup into motion. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10. I'll put it on the screen. 2 Samuel 15, verse 10. It says, but while he was there, Absalom, while he was there, he sent secret messengers to all the tribes of Israel to stir up a rebellion against the king. As soon as you hear the ram's horn, his message read, you are to say, Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. He had pre-staged his people in all the major cities and towns of Israel. And when they heard the the trumpet sound, they were to say, Absalom is now the king. People just believed what they heard. They didn't have social media. They didn't have newspapers. They didn't have television, of course. They're just believing it. And plus, they liked Absalom. His popularity had risen. 2 Samuel chapter 15, uh, verses 13 and 14 A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, all Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. Verse 14, then we must flee at once or it will be too late, David urged his men. Hurry, if we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. David says, we have to get out of the city. We've got to run. If Absalom shows up and I try to defend this city, he will destroy this city, trying to destroy me. And he will kill every man, woman, boy, or girl that stands in his way. He will put them to the sword. And I love this city too much, and I love the people too much to let that happen. We've got to run. And now, once again, in David's life, he is an exile, fleeing for his life. This time, he's not a teenager or in his early 20s, running from King Saul. Now he is 62 years old, running from his son, fleeing the very city where he's the king. This is not what God promised. Life is not working out as he had planned. This is not a part of the dream that he had for his future. And this is where David's story intersects with our story. Have you ever been in a situation where life didn't work out as planned? Where something took you by surprise? And here we are. And we can't be blamed for in those moments saying, God, where are you? God, why did you let this happen? God, what's even the point of trying to live for you? If this is what I'm going to get in return, why even try Maybe some of you had this conversation with yourself this morning, whether or not you were even coming to church. This is how you felt. And so often, many of us in this pivotal moment, we give up on God. But notice how David responds. 2 Samuel 15, verses 23 through 26. Everyone cried loudly as the king and his followers passed by. They crossed the Kidron Valley and then went out toward the wilderness. Verse 24, Zadok, who, by the way, is the high priest of Israel. Zadok and all the Levites, uh, those are not people who wore Levi jeans. Those are the priests uh, from the family of Levi. Uh, So they served under the high priest. So Zadok and all the Levites also came along, carrying, notice this, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until everyone had passed out of the city. Now see this picture. The king is dejectedly and hurriedly fleeing the city. The people in his entourage are behind him. The high priest and the Levites are behind him. And they're bringing with them the Ark of the Covenant of God. And in Israel's history, that was that Ark placed in the tabernacle or the temple where God would uniquely manifest his presence among his people. It had often become to Israel like a good luck charm because it represented the presence and the power of God among the people of Israel. And so, of course, the priests are bringing that ark out. God's with the king. But something doesn't feel right to David about this. Verse 23 or verse 25 says, Then the king instructed Zadok to take the ark of God back into the city. David says, if the Lord sees fit, he will bring me back to see the ark and the tabernacle again. David says, no, 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 take the ark back. I'm not going to use God. I'm not going to manipulate God. I'm not going to use the ark as a good luck charm. If it's God's will, if I find favor, if God is gracious to me, I will see that ark again, and I will see the tabernacle of God again. Verse 26, but if he is through with me, but if God is through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. David is saying, I'm not going to use God. I'm going to trust God. David did not forsake God, even though it appeared God had forsaken him. To everyone looking from the outside in, seeing David the king fleeing and the ark of God staying behind in Jerusalem. Evidently, God is not with David. But David did not forsake God, even though it appeared God had forsaken him. David's circumstances have changed, but his confidence in God has not. Moving forward in our story, Absalom takes the city of Jerusalem without a fight. The good news is he has the capital city of Jerusalem. The bad news is he doesn't have the king. And as long as he doesn't have David, he can't truly be embraced as the king of Israel. He can never be secure. He needs David, his father, dead. In comes Ahithophel. Ahithophel stayed behind in Jerusalem. He had been for many years an advisor to King David, but he switches sides. He decides the political popularity has swayed from David to Absalom. I'm just going to stay behind and I'm going to offer my services to the new king. So when Absalom shows up, he says, just as I advised your father, I'm here to advise you. I serve the Lord's anointed and it looks like you're the one. How can I help you? Absalom says, what advice will you give me? He says, here's what I would do. You ought to give me 12,000 soldiers to go right now and to hunt David down. And when we kill David, his army is going to disperse. And then you won't have to kill them. You'll be the rightful king and you'll be popular. And meanwhile, out in the wilderness, another one of David's advisors is there. His name is Hushai. And David says, Hushai, I don't really need you here. I need you to go back to the palace because I know Ahithophel stayed back and you need to counteract the advice he's giving Absalom, my son. Hushai says, you sure? And, he, and David says, yes, Hushai, I'm sure. You go back, give him advice. So Hushai goes back to the palace, greets, <laughs> greets Absalom and says, just as I served your father, David, I'm here to serve you. In 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 7 through 9, this is what happens. Well, Hushai replied to Absalom, this time Ahithophel has made a mistake. So Absalom says, okay, you want to advise me? What's your advice? I've already heard from from, uh, Ahithophel. What's your advice, Hushai? He says, well, usually that guy's pretty good. But this time he's wrong. He's giving you some bad advice. Verse 8, you know your father and his men. They are mighty warriors. Right now they are as enraged as a mother bear who has been robbed of her cubs. And remember that your father is an experienced man of war. He won't be spending the night among the troops. He is probably already hidden in some pit or cave. And when he comes out and attacks and a few of your men fall, there will be panic among your troops, and the word will spread that Absalom's men are being slaughtered. So Hushai says, I'll give you my advice. Take your time. Don't be in a hurry. He's trying to give David time. To flee. So just take your time. Don't be in a hurry. And here's what you ought to do. Gather an army from all over Israel. I know it'll take a long time, but it's going to be worth the wait. Get people from all over Israel, and then you can go out and fight against David. You'll probably kill him pretty soon, but even if he flees and hides in a cave somewhere, you still got a huge army that can help you hunt him down. Just take your time. By the way, we won't read it, but Ahithophel gets so discouraged that his advice wasn't taken, and Absalom received Hushai's advice that Ahithophel went home and hung himself, killed himself, took his life. That'll depress you on it. That's in the Bible. You ought to read your Bible once in a while. 2 Samuel 18, verse 5. And the king gave this command to Joab. So meanwhile, out there in the wilderness, David has found a little town called Mahanaim. And David divided his troops into three groups rather than just one, put three commanding officers over them, ready to go out and fight with his men, but the men say, no, you are too valuable. You're the king. We need you alive. You can't go to battle. Let us handle it. And so they agree. We'll take the fight, but you stay back. So David gave this instruction to his commanding officers. The king gave this command to Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. For my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. He's saying, listen, he's just a young rebel Be kind to him. Don't kill him. And all the troops heard the king give this order to his commanders. Verse 6, so the battle began in the forest of Ephraim. Verse 7, and the Israelite troops, those are the ones led by Absalom, were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter that day, and 20,000 men laid down their lives. The battle raged all across the countryside, and more men died because of the forest than were killed by the sword. The force was so dense that it was hard for the army of Israel with one commanding officer to truly be effective in fighting, and they were easy prey for David's few men. But Absalom is killed by none other than Joab himself. David's son is killed, and David mourns. When word reaches David, he mourns so greatly that Joab is furious. He says, your men who went out there and fought for you think we lost by looking at you mourn. Come out there and greet your troops and be happy that they've won the victory and given you your throne back. But David is broken hearted because his son is dead. Life is not working out like he planned. Dear friend, it is always a mistake To connect our confidence in God with our circumstances in life. If your confidence in God is based on the circumstances of your life, when circumstances are good, then God must be good. When circumstances are bad, God must be bad. God must not care. But David made a decision When life wasn't working out like he planned, that you can make as well. Did you notice it? We read it real quickly in 2 Samuel 15, verses 25 and 26. He says to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. And notice this. He says, if the Lord sees fit, he will bring me back to see the ark in the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, let him do what seems best to him. If God... Here's my prayers, great. If God doesn't hear my prayers, I'm okay with that too because I trust God to do what God sees best. Dear friend, living by faith means believing that God is good even when life isn't. And if you haven't heard anything else I said or if you got lost in history and names and you don't know what book of the Bible we're in anymore, I don't know where this guy's going. If you haven't heard anything else, I need you to hear what I'm about to say. Everybody looking, listening? The foundation of your faith is not a good life. It is a good God. The foundation of your faith is not a good life but a good God. And that's what David is saying. He's saying life is not good right now. I'm on the run right now. My dreams haven't come true. This is not what I planned. This is not how I thought I would be spending this season of my life. But the foundation of my faith is not a good life. It's a good God. And I trust God to do what's right. That's why David would later write Psalm 31, verse 14. But I am trusting you, O Lord, saying you are my God. When did David say, I'm trusting in you, you are my God? Only when life was good? No, even when life was bad. He made a decision. The foundation of my faith is not a good life, it's a good God. And I can promise you this morning between the 8 o'clock service and this service and the next service and the Spanish service, there are people who have shown up here today who say the foundation of my faith is not a good life because life at this point is not so good. But I'm here today because my faith is in a good God. There's a mom here today who has renewed her faith in a good God even though her child is sick. There's a husband here today who has staked his faith on a good God, even though he's having to fight for his marriage and he's not sure if it's going to come through. There's an addict that showed up here this morning saying, My faith is in a good God, even though my struggle to be sober and clean fights me every day. There's somebody that showed up here this morning that said, My faith is in a good God, even though I'm battling depression and discouragement. There's somebody who showed up today saying, My faith is in a good God. Even though the test results are not good. And dear friend, that is the foundation of your faith. The God who makes all things work together for good. All things aren't good. But he can make all things somehow, sometime, now or in eternity. He can bring some good out of it. If we will only trust him. And Jesus is our supreme example. Of recognizing that the foundation of his life was not a good life. The foundation of his faith was not a good life but a good God because he came into this world, stripped off the prerogatives of deity, lived every moment of every day, including all the way to his death on a cross as the Son of Man, trusting the Father by faith. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, he falls down on his face and he sweats so profusely. Great drops of blood pour down his face. He knows what's ahead of him as he dies for the sins of the world. And three times he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. But he closed all three prayers in the same way. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Jesus would say to you this morning who are struggling, the foundation of your faith is not a good life. It's a good God. And you can trust in Him. Maybe today you need to say, you know what? I'm going to remind myself when life is not good and I'm ready to give up on God. That God, I'm trusting you. And you are my God even here, even now, even under these circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know there are some people in this room who need to hear this message. I know I'm one. And I know there's some people that showed up here by faith, not by their feelings, not based on their circumstances, but faith in you. And you are a good God. Our circumstances may not be good, but you are. And we can look to Jesus and see how good you are, that you gave your only son for us sinners. He died and he was buried, but he rose from the dead to give us the gift of eternal life. And God, we thank you and we praise you for that. And because you've given us the good gift of your son, we know that you're in charge. And we can remember that after the groaning we may have to go through, there will be glory. After the cross, there's a coronation. After the pain, there are pleasures of eternity. But in the meantime, remind us today that the foundation of our faith is not a good life, but a good God. Today we draw closer to you, God. We thank you and praise you for your love and for your care. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your goodness. And God, we thank you that you take us where we are, as we are, and you love us unconditionally. Today we rest in your love. In Christ's name we pray.